This is an ABC podcast. <laughs> That's the sound of a crowd of supporters at Seattle City Hall welcoming the passing of a groundbreaking council ordinance. Hi, Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. The US city has just become the first jurisdiction outside of South Asia to outlaw discrimination based on caste. The caste system is a hierarchical structure that determines a person's social standing at birth. It has roots in Hinduism, but has later proliferated to other faiths across South Asia. Councillor Sharma Sawant is the driving force behind the Seattle campaign. Sharma Sawant, what forms of discrimination does this ordinance prohibit? It's everything. Access to public spaces, access to housing, whether it is access to you know fair terms on loans to buy a home or fair terms to be able to rent a home from a landlord and also the question of employment. So if you're facing discrimination in your workplace, then the law covers you. So, But, but basically it covers you in every situation. Now, in recent times, millions of people from South Asia have immigrated to Western countries. The community now stands at, I think, 5.4 million in the US. And in, in Australia, India is now one of our largest sources of immigrants. What sorts of discrimination do you see in the US that warrants this sort of move to ban caste-based discrimination? So if you look at the various data sets that provide statistical analysis of how people of South Asian origin who are from oppressed caste are facing discrimination, a lot of the data shows primarily on discrimination in employment, you know, to discrimination in the workplace. But certainly in the area of employment, it's pretty clear that oppressed caste workers face systematic discrimination. Just to give you an example, the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing, in August of last year, uh, they won an appeals court ruling to take forward the case of an oppressed caste work- tech worker in the company Cisco. Cisco is a multi-billion dollar tech conglomerate. And the case alleges that the oppressed caste worker was denied raises, promotions, and other benefits at the hands of his dominant caste bosses. So inherently, you see this sort of situation happens when there's a power imbalance where the bosses are from dominant caste South Asian communities and you are a worker who is an oppressed caste person. So the data shows, for example, one of the studies shows that two-thirds of caste-oppressed workers claim that they are facing discrimination. And there's another study that also shows significantly widespread incidences of caste discrimination. And in addition to all of this, we've also heard from hundreds of workers, many of them from the tech sector, like I said before, who say that they are facing systematic discrimination on the basis of caste. And I don't think that the United States would be unique in this. I mean, wherever you have a significant concentration of South Asian immigrant workers, I'm pretty sure you're going to see that. So I think this is relevant for countries like Australia, for example. 
Coming back to that, that uh, Cisco case, uh, I understand attorneys for the plaintiff are relying on California anti-discrimination statutes that include protection for discrimination based on ancestry. Um, so so it, it doesn't quite fit caste, but that's a that's a proxy for it. That's 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 exactly why we we fought for this law because ancestry doesn't exactly fulfill the kind of protection caste oppressed people need in the law. It's good that that case is happening, but it's exactly why we need a law like this. So if there was a law like that in before that case was filed, it would be a much better situation for the plaintiffs because the law would have explicitly outlawed or made it illegal for caste-based discrimination to happen, which is why we pushed for it, as I said, and you know there, there were a lot of right-wing people who said, well, you don't need to do this. It's already covered. Well, it's not. That's the whole point. Well, it's interesting you say that. I understand that the Seattle City Ordinance was passed by council. I think it's six to one vote. There was one council member who voted against it, uh, Sarah Nelson, and, and she was the lone dissenting vote. And she said, quote, the ordinance was a reckless, harmful solution to a problem for which we have no data or research. And she was also very concerned that it could generate anti-Hindu discrimination and dissuasion employers from, from hiring South Asians. It was her view that the South Asian community was being impacted and, and deeply divided by this issue. How would you respond to that? The council member that you quoted, she is a conservative, pro-big business council member, so it was no surprise at all that she sided with the right wing. And as I said, yes, there was opposition to the ordinance, but we expect that, you know, whenever progressives or the left fight for something meaningful you know if there's a meaningful change in society it doesn't come without the opposition of the right wing and also the entrenched business classes as well so if you also look at who was opposing it from you know from south asian background it wasn't just randomly people had different opinions no it was the right wing that was opposing it so who was supporting and as far as who was supporting the ordinance it was tens of thousands of people and 175 community organizations, both local and national and also international. And it had the support of the overwhelming majority of obviously caste oppressed people themselves, but also the overwhelming majority of dominant caste Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, my organization, Socialist Alternative, and union members, their unions endorsing our ordinance because they understood that the fight against discrimination is a workers' fight. Coming back to the tech issue, I mean, I, I think it's very interesting that the two places in the USA which appear to be at the forefront of this movement, and indeed at the forefront of the Western world, are Seattle in Washington State and also Silicon Valley in California, and the, they are, of course, tech hubs and home to many hundreds of thousands of, of professionals of, of South Asian origin. I understand in 2020, 30 women engineers born into Dalit caste, the lowest rank in India's system of social hierarchy, that they shared their experience of caste bias in the US tech industry in an anonymous letter. What sorts of complaints did they make about their experience in, in the tech industry? Yeah, I know uh, the letter you're talking about. It was actually a very courageous letter, even if it was written 
anonymously it it took tremendous courage for the 30 or dalit women workers to speak up and the letter you're talking about was published in the washington post and in fact what they said was that for them it was doubly worse because not only did they face discrimination as dalits but they faced discrimination as dalit women and they they called what they've been experiencing in the tech sector as quote dominant caste locker room culture at its worst end quote so i think that is a very uh, telling a phrase that describes how bad they are and they say that the male bosses the dominant caste bosses that they were dealing with they often left these women dalit women engineers out of meetings they constantly underestimated their capabilities anytime there were career opportunities the dominant caste bosses would promote their own caste network friends before rather than deciding who actually deserved it based on their performance and their intellect and talent and so it would those opportunities would not go to the dalit women engineers and they also faced constant harassment on the basis of just derogatory comments and slurs and those slurs being ex- used in a, ex- as an excuse to portray their programming work you know their technical work as shoddy and then in the cases where it was the worst situation they also faced direct sexual harassment their um complaints and and their analysis of, of their experience it, it mirrors very much the Cisco case where the plaintiff says that he was excluded from meetings passed up for promotions due to his status as part of the Dalit caste yes. and also he accused Cisco of retaliating against him when when he complained about this treatment I'm wondering and I understand that in this industry and in others many people will either hide their caste status at the interview stage or hide it from their workplace and their workmates so it's an ongoing problem It is it is in fact one of the but one of the most moving types of testimonials we've heard is exactly the kind you're talking about where many dalit workers never never revealed not just at the interview stage but never ended up revealing their caste identity because they were justifiably afraid that if they did that they would be targeted just for being lower caste not on the basis of their performance and actually there are some dalit uh, workers who became part of our struggle in seattle to win this legislation who used the fight around this legislation to feel empowered for themselves you know because they had a movement behind them they had a movement around them the solidarity of hundreds of people who were showing up to these meetings in the city council they they had um, a sort of a coming out you know like how for uh, lgbtq people coming out is a big deal it used to be even more of a big deal earlier you know when there was much more discrimination against them even violence and so coming out is a scary prospect for lgbtq people it's the same situation for dalits and so they felt empowered to come out as dalits to openly say that yeah i'm dalit and i'm going to be open about it but all of that demonstrates how widespread the discrimination is and how how much of a serious issue it is that it can end up creating this uh, deeply repressive situation because can you imagine not being able to say who you are 
Seattle City Councillor Shama Sawant. So does caste discrimination exist here in Australia? Dr Vikrant Kishore is a Deakin University Honorary Fellow and documentary filmmaker. He's co-authored a submission to the Australian Human Rights Commission calling for caste-based discrimination to be recognised as a form of racial discrimination. Damien, caste is a big issue. At the moment in Australia, what we see in terms of caste, employment issues are not that huge. Okay, but the things that are impacting in terms of caste discrimination are social exclusion and discrimination, economic marginalization, which also happens on the basis of caste, mental health. Now, these are the kind of things uh, that is impacting caste discrimination. Though when we say economic or uh, in terms of uh, employment opportunities, this generally takes place within the South Asian community and which works in a way where they are looking towards their own people. And when they say own people, it's not South Asian. It's people from South Asia, but of their own caste or someone similar to their own caste. So this is like uh, finding people who would be of the same upper caste group to come and to be either their friends or to work or to, you know, mingle with. And this is a historical problem. A whole lot of that is indirect, but indirect social exclusion really, really takes place. Well, tell me about some of that indirect social exclusion in things like employment or um, access to accommodation. We have seen cases from the Nepalese community where people have been made to wait in a community group to eat, you know, so they were served last. There were a couple of students who were thrown out of their shared accommodation once uh, the landlord or who they were sharing with, they got to know that they are from so-called lower caste than theirs. And one of the things that you'll find how caste operates in Australia is that it's a very easy thing to do how to find caste is to ask people's surname. And that surname becomes one of the first thing to decide for people as do they want to continue their relationship or become friends or become social acquaintances with someone or not. But can that sort of discrimination in a social or maybe even in a religious context be put into anti-discrimination legislation? Yes, it could be. And what is discrimination? Discrimination is always about marginalising people, making them feel terrible. And there is a huge segment of uh, you know people who are discriminating on the basis of caste so we have in australia and throughout the western world uh, protected attributes you know things like religion race gender do you want in australian legislation caste as a an explicit separate protected attribute well, it should be mentioned, you know, because, of course, uh, the, especially when we, you know, went through this uh, Australian Human Rights Commission's National Anti-Racism Framework and its call. So when AHRC made this call to widen the ambit, we were very pleased with that because the widening of ambit of anti-racism framework is about 
you can put in anything which you think where people are being discriminated and which is not documented within the Australian framework of you know discrimination and our thing is that uh, this needs to be taken into account such as what what happens with racism or in terms of religious discrimination or in terms of sexual discrimination you know how things happen when we know it we are able to fight it if we don't know about it how will we fight it or how will we challenge it Dr. Vikrant Kishore from Deakin University Honorary Fellow and also a documentary filmmaker, thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Yeah, thank you so much for giving me this chance. Sydney World Pride 2023 is in full swing. It's a joyous celebration of LGBTQIA plus life and culture. As part of the festival, the city's hosting a three-day Pride Human Rights Conference, focusing on how to create a safe, inclusive and equal world for everyone. A keynote speaker at the event is Costa Rican lawyer Victor Madrigal Borlots. He's the UN independent expert on sexual orientation and gender identity. One of the issues he'll be talking about at the conference is gay conversion practices, which he described in a recent report as a form of torture. The reason why I characterize these practices as such is because they're based on the premise that LGBT people are somehow inferior and that, of course, that they are to be subjected to these practices that we know out of very well-documented evidence create enormous damage both at physical and psychological levels. So how many countries have outlawed gay conversion practices? Well, that's a vibrant environment because there are legislations being actually discussed uh, right now in different parts of the world. Including New South Wales, in fact. Including in New South Wales. And, uh, and of course, as far as my evidence base indicates, there's a good 30 countries in which these practices are banned either from a legal or an administrative perspective. Can these laws go too far? I understand there's a prosecution in Malta, which is covered on uh, another Radio National uh, program, the Religion and Ethics Report. It involves a young man, Matthew Gretsch, who spoke on TV and radio about his own journey, being gay, then finding God and saying that prayer helped him convert or change his sexual preference. He's been prosecuted with advertising the practice of, of gay conversion Is there a balance to be struck between people telling their own truth and also discouraging the promotion of these practices? Well, absolutely. I think my conclusion under international human rights law is that persons who wish to avail themselves of support mechanisms not to act on their sexual desires are, of course, doing so as part of the fundamental freedom that we all have to determine the confines of our existence and our behavior. So, of course, that is protected under a whole gamut of human rights. However, the question is, to what extent is that decision being taken in freedom and with full informed consent, including the clear messaging that there is nothing wrong with being lesbian or gay or bisexual and trans, that these are healthy manifestations of human diversity that are to be celebrated rather than censored. And secondly, 
making it very clear by part of providers that there is no scientific evidence attesting that these practices do indeed reach the announced objective of changing a person's sexual orientation. And I think that, I mean, is where the, the key of the matter resides is this is an issue where informed consent needs also to be, or to exist, needs to be in the context of proper information as to the real possibility of these practices to achieve what they advertise. Mm. But if people speak to their truth, should they be prosecuted, even if they don't say those two things that you, you want them to say? It's hard to issue uh, an opinion on individual cases before all of the aspects of the case are fully known. But I think that if people speak to their truth and give testimony as to what their perception of their lived reality, this is, of course, to be encouraged. If, however, this is a form of advertisement of a particular practice that is not documented in scientific terms, then it can indeed very quickly transform itself into a public health hazard. It'll be interesting to see how that uh, prosecution and, and trial um, unfolds in Malta. Another area which has been hitting the headlines recently have been issues around uh, gender identity. They're front and centre in Scotland, which uh, recently passed its uh, Gender Recognition Reform Bill. It allows people to self-identify their gender rather than have any set criteria, such as living as a person of that gender for a specified time or having had gender transitioning uh, medical treatments. I understand that a number of countries now have similar kinds of laws. How many countries have gone down that path? There's a good uh, 350 million people that live in systems of self-identification of gender identity. And uh, the list of countries that actually offer that, I think it's right now in 12. Now, as you know, Scotland adopted its Gender Recognition Act, but that was subject then to an Article 35 procedure in the United Kingdom. So it means that that act hasn't become the law of the land in Scotland. Now, the thing about self-identification processes is that they represent the human rights best practice alternative to systems that did require pathologization of trans people in the form of diagnostic of gender dysphoria, for example, or castration, or compelled divorce, or any other sort of arbitrary requirements that have been historically imposed on trans persons and that actually represented interferences, not only in the right to privacy, but in very many cases, the right to personal integrity. Now, self-identification doesn't mean complete lack of regulation. The Scottish system and many other systems that actually have been adopted on self-identification include uh, the idea that there would be living under a particular time. The uh, Scottish legislation, what it did was reduce the time from two years to a number of months, and it eliminated what, in my view, was an arbitrary requirement of third-party evaluation. The other thing is that self-identification can also be challenged, but under good practice, the onus is actually on the challenging party and on the state, rather than demanding that people actually prove why they actually have a particular gender identity. 
Um, the last thing that I can add is that uh, two weeks ago, Spain passed its legislation on legal recognition of gender identity, and that added some 47 million people to that tally, which now approaches 400 million people living in systems of recognition based on self-ID. A lot of the debate in Scotland focused around a person called Isla Bryson, a trans woman who in January this year was found guilty of raping two women before she transitioned from male to female. Prior to her trial, she was held on remand in isolation at a women's prison where she had no contact with other prisoners. But she's now in a, in a men's prison. The case attracted a lot of attention because... Many felt it highlighted the dangers that could accompany self-identification laws. And indeed, Reem Al-Salem, uh, the UN Special Rapporteur for Violence Against Women and Girls, has expressed concerns about this Scottish law posing a risk that predatory men could use the law to gain access for predatory purposes. I think that what we need to accept is that every legislation that recognises rights has an implication of the risk and the possibility that some people will abuse or try to abuse those rights. And I think that the way to manage that possibility is risk assessment, risk management by the state, rather than taking from a whole population and community the rights that are their own under international human rights. So one of the reasons why it is important that very careful consideration be given to the deprivation of liberty and the places of deprivation of liberty for trans women is that we know that they are disproportionately subjected to violence, including sexual violence, when their situation and their placement is not uh, adequately assessed. So the case that you mentioned in Scotland illustrated the way in which a whole tidal wave of very fast moral panic actually affected a whole community of trans persons who are seeing their rights questioned just because there is the possibility that there is one case that actually would represent an abuse or would not be correctly managed. The proper procedure for a person that may represent a risk to others, and that is not only relating to trans women, it's relating to any person that may represent a risk to others, is to actually carry out uh, an individualized assessment of risk and to decide on the basis of proper penitentiary practice and knowledge, what is the placement that actually ensures the best risk management for everybody involved. You're in Australia for the Sydney Pride 2023 Human Rights Conference. What are your observations of Australia on, on these issues around uh, rights for gender and uh, sexuality uh, diverse people? Well, I've noted in some of my reports the legislation at state level which uh, seeks to end practices of conversion, in some cases as good practice. And I think there are significant possibilities that some of that legislation is actually best practice under international standards. I am very grateful for the support of Australia to my mandate. I don't take that for granted because it continues to be a controversial mandate. 
I'm grateful for the positioning of Australia internationally in relation to the possibilities that exist within and throughout the Pacific region to further combat criminalization, for example. I think that part of the conversations that are difficult and important also relate to the way in which rights of refugees and asylum seekers relate to sexual orientation and gender identity. And I'm looking forward to learning significantly about these issues at this human rights conference, where I know the intersection of different identities is going to be very much uh, discussed. Victor Madrigal Borlos, UN independent expert on sexual orientation and gender identity, thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. That's The Law Report for this week. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and also to technical producer Brendan O'Neill. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.